0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special interview edition, Uh, we'll call it episode 201B, I suppose, of MTG Fast Finance, your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering Finance, Collection Management, and Speculation. I am your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MGG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Bumpen. And of course, we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. But tonight we have a special guest. I would like to welcome to the cast uh, Drew Levin, uh, Magic Pro Player of Note, uh, Magic Personality and Social Media, Senior Product Manager at Zynga, out of the San Francisco Bay Area, Welcome to the cast, Drew.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Travis, you're with us too?
2: Uh, I am here. I am looking forward to our conversation with Drew. Um, I have... Drew and I, I think, are both less active in the magic social media space than we have been, but he and I have had a couple conversations on Twitter that our longtime listeners may have been privy to once or twice, uh, and I've always respected Drew's opinions um, and insights, so I'm I'm looking forward to getting to discuss some of your bullet points in finer detail here.
0: Likewise. All right, so the reason we've got Drew on the show this evening... Um, well, I guess first, Drew, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Can you tell us about your, uh, your history in Magic the Gathering and, and how you spend your days at work?
1: Sure, absolutely. So Magic Pro is probably something that I could have charitably claimed a decade ago and could not reasonably like claim to in the last five years. But uh, I have always professionally had an opinion on the internet uh, because social <laughs> media is truly uh, the, the democratizer <laughs> of people's opinions. So uh, in that sense, I've been a magic pro for as long as I've had a, a Twitter account that people cared to follow. Fair enough. But I've, I've, the last pro tour I played in was about a decade ago. So good at magic, debatable, but probably not. Uh, I, I would argue the, the against, but uh, I, Most of the reason that people have cared about me at all is because I tend to be decent plus at writing and talking. And so even if I don't play the game as well as many, um, I can generally talk about how systems fit together, why some things work, how other things don't work. And uh, if not be right, then at least uh, get people to think about things in a slightly different way.
2: If we're setting the bar for you at not good magic player and mediocre to decent writer and speaker, that bodes very poorly for me. And I'm not comfortable with the curve we've set at the outset of okay, the conversation. <laughs> uh, I'll,
1: I'll, I'll try and set expectations a little bit higher. Uh, someone thought it was a good idea to pay me to write and have opinions for like several years on the internet. I wrote for starcitygames.com for a long time. And. I played on sort of the the protean scg tour as it's now known mm-hmm. uh in its in its early years and wrote a bunch of tech articles recorded a bunch of video content never quite got into streaming and then uh sort of when radio silent in the magic community uh around the time that i joined the games industry and have worked in free-to-play games i'm gonna pause here so that you can include one of those like crowd booing and hissing and like throwing tomatoes, uh, sounds like, no, everyone, everyone hates free to play games. Uh, so I work on words with friends now, which is, I guess like your mom's free to play game or whatever, but it's a lot of fun work. Uh, Zynga is a great place to work. Highly recommend it. And, uh, so my, my background for the last five years has been working in analytics and product on free to play games, thinking about, how this business model works, how these games are built, how to do that better. Uh, And so I would like to think that I have a decent appreciation on that from a professional.
2: I've got close to 3,000 hours in a free-to-play game, Path to Exile. And I'm sure you and I could spend while because ch- I also have plenty of opinions about it as a non professional as a non-professional game designer but also professional opinion haver um, and you and I could probably fill an hour or two discussing that uh, but I suppose that's neither here nor there this evening
1: yeah I mean you can make a path of exile path of exile uh, podcast and we can we can chat about that <laughs> but they ha- I mean, that has to exist you and I can yeah,
2: yeah it's, you and I can elbow away on the bay class
1: <laughs> perfect yeah no we'll, we'll we'll make it for sure so the way we actually ended up luring Drew uh,
0: to our bosom for this discussion was on the basis of a tweet storm he set off on December 15th of 2019 that uh, popped up in my feed and was a very good read, I, I thought. Um, from the From the perspective that it, I think, encapsulated many of the things that we've been talking about with our audience over the course of 2019, as pertains to the magic economy, the state of play, the state of organized play, um, the state of game design for magic and where the economy of magic may be headed moving forward and, and an exploration of some of the risks and opportunities. Does that sound like a, a decent summary, Drew?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the tweetstorm was basically inspired by, um, I guess someone on their alt account, so I won't I won't out exactly who is attached to that account, uh, but someone I would consider a friend who was inspired in turn by basically a Silicon Valley bigwig who was like, challenge yourself to have a hundred opinions on anything. And so I did a hundred opinions on politics, which was <laughs> remarkably easy. And then like I got about two thirds of the way through my opinions on magic, and then kept leaving off because holiday season. I went to a holiday party. I went to a dinner. Like. I keep putting it off. I'll eventually finish it. You went but to you went to dinner. Safe to say, I've got hanging. a lot of opinions. Some of them might be right. I mean, sometimes you forget to pick it back up after dinner. Oh yeah, I don't yeah, have yeah. a good excuse. I do think I do excuses. They're I find the
2: genesis of this amusing. some guy challenged people to have a hundred opinions online. It's like, are you kidding me? The challenge here should be to not yeah, exactly. have any opinions online. That's much much harder.
1: Oh yeah. No, I mean. don't don't post is a bigger challenge than having a hundred opinions, but can you have a hundred opinions about different things expressed articulately in a way that people care about is probably a better filter. Well, yeah. Sure. So
0: the first big theme that I picked up on in this thread, um, that I was hoping you would, you know, lead us through and, and comment a bit more deeply on is the idea that magic's pursuit of, uh, Gaining the label of an esport may
1: be a dubious pursuit. Yeah. So I think that, like, talking about magic as an esport is sort of a a third level concern. And that really where you want to start is, like, in some maybe not boardroom, but in some meeting room in Renton where someone puts on a whiteboard, like, is magic a physical or a digital game? Right. Because, like, esports are like a marketing tool that are like a means to an end of promoting a digital product in in today's day and age. So like you, you already sort of beg a bunch of questions by starting there, but I think the, the place that I would uh, begin the conversation is I think that Wizards thinks that magic in 10 years is more digital than physical. And if you... If you buy that premise, then a lot of things follow naturally. If you think that that premise is faulty or bad, then a lot of what I said is nonsense.
0: Sure. So I think we could probably both agree that probing in the direction of increasing their profile as a digital brand is a worthwhile pursuit, especially given that, and despite the fact that Hasbro doesn't really have any digital DNA. Like one of the big problems here is not only are they famous for underpaying um, for tech talent in general in an industry where that is usually pretty critical. And a city. um,
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I've heard countless stories about basically their pay bands for tech talent are set at Providence, Rhode Island pay scales, (laughs) but they're competing in Seattle. So like, you know, where where you would expect them to be competing for, like, ex-Microsoft, ex-Amazon talent, to the best of my knowledge, they're not really doing that. And right. so, you know, you, there there is a lot to be taken away from, like, Magic Online was originally coded as a contract job by Leaping Lizards. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, they, 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 they are not a digital first company, and it's arguable that they're not a digital second company.
0: And... Even, and their other really big hit digitally, you know, arguably Duels of the Planeswalkers was a massive onboarding tool that kind of came, came out of nowhere, to my understanding, was also a third-party proposed. Um, Entirely believable. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I could absolutely believe that that was either a work-for-hire studio or a contract or like publishing setup where someone who was very good at making uh, a digital product basically worked with Hasbro's brand or publishing division to build them something incredible.
0: Right. And so, I mean, the, the fact that Hasbro is essentially a, you know, retailing and distribution company. um, Yeah. They're,
1: they're a physical goods hobby publisher.
0: Right. Informs a lot of, what has gone on with this subsidiary was the coast as they have attempted to compete with the explosive um, growth and talent competition around digital products in general and digital gaming in specific leading to magic online being, you know, an embarrassment for yeah. the better part. No, of I mean, one of, one of my favorite
1: quotes uh, from someone who uh, will remain nameless is that Wizards of the Coast basically treated Magic Online as like going into a gold mine with a toy pail and shovel and coming out with a bucket full of gold and being like we did it it's a success.
2: <laughs>
1: right. Um and
0: and there's some, there's some there's some interesting follow-on to that because my understanding of the business models associated with Magic Online versus Arena <clears throat> is that the ARPU, the average revenue per user, is probably quite a lot lower in Arena than it was with Magic Online, um, which suggests that they need to hit a much ho- larger scale factor to justify the project.
1: <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. I'm
2: I um, i was, I'm kind of in the same space that I think the move to digital is uh, not the wisest idea for Wizards here and that ultimately they... And I've made this point before on the cast that they are... They're losing their what makes them special in their attempt to move to digital. And I think one of your comments in the thread, and I don't have this number pulled up, but you made a point of saying that Magic is a terrible game to watch. And can never oh yeah, really no, be it's a like the third sport. or
1: fourth tweet. It's yeah,
2: yeah, and, and that rang really true because I remember back when, uh, you know, when the Star City tour was kind of new and there was you know a lot of conversations, and I had maintained that Limited was a terrible way to watch Magic. Because it was, it lacked any excitement and it was so easy to not have any idea what was going on um, because this was a, a whole subset of cards that you like, you, there was a lot more cards you had to know and a lot more subtle nuances even as an experienced Magic player it was difficult to keep track of what was going on uh, yeah. compared to Constructed. And, you know, the the, the rest of this idea kind of pull, I think pulls out of that is that Magic is inherently a bad game to watch online which to me is probably the core of of the re- the core reason that Magic as a digital game just doesn't make sense because it is just so hard to sit and watch it and find it entertaining, even if you're an enfranchised player, and like all of these other players, cas- all these other problems cascade from that.
1: Right, exactly. And so, the top tier esports are games that are built to be exciting to watch, even if you don't know how the game is played. Right? And so, like, give, give me your top five esports of all time. Uh, if so you're League, asking me. League, League, yeah. of,
0: League of Legends, Call of Duty. Yep. yep.
1: <clears throat> so it's, by and large, Dota. they're going to be, like, action-based, character-driven, like, games with clear, intuitive moments of excitement, climax, action, Right. You don't need to know the rules of League of Legends to know that killing someone matters and that two characters or even more. Right. Like a, a huge team fight is big and important. And that like people casting spells and using ultimates is like a bunch of cool stuff. And that like people zipping around the map and doing stuff is very exciting to you. Right. Like Overwatch is another great example where it's like people using their ultimates and huge team fights like You get it even if you don't understand how to control any of those characters. And so it's entertaining to watch. They expand their audience beyond their player base. Magic has none of that, right? Like The climactic turn of almost any Magic game is impossible to describe to people because everything has the exact same shape and interacts in basically the exact same way, which is that it turns 90 degrees to the right. And None none of that is watchable.
0: And if you're coming in fresh, you're at least two hours of explanation away from even having the contextual cues that would allow you to parse the situation on screen.
1: Yeah, no. Esports, like Magic streaming is entirely for its enfranchised players as an aspirational tool for wanting to be on the camera. And what Wizards has done in how it has set up its MPL is try to employ a stable of loyal, dedicated, uh, disciplined, charismatic people to teach the game to uh, would-be players, right? Like that that's the point of MPL. That's the point of streaming contracts is to always have esports as an on-ramp, right? If you know nothing about Magic, you can watch someone play it. You can, you know, watch, you can be a part of their community until you absorb enough information that you feel comfortable playing. And you can play on the same client as them, right? All of the visual cues are the same. Um, The people who watch the SCG tour, who would watch, you know, physical pro tours, by and large, I would expect them to be aspirants. I would expect them to want to be on that stage. I don't necessarily think that you need to be, you know, anyone in the MPL to want to watch them. And so, like, at least from that sense, it's good. But you know there's there's a bunch of deficiencies which is that it's it's not that like you're not going to expand you're not going to grow your audience in a huge way just because the game is so hard to pick up if you don't have someone to teach it to you okay. which is
0: which basically leads you to a position where your cost per acquisition per user is through the roof
1: right i mean that that was always going to be the case on paid advertising which is why like the way you fight that is through esports right if, if you're paying five dollars a user to get people to play magic arena your economics probably don't work but if you can at scale attract a bunch of you know viral clicks through twitch's homepage, then maybe you have a business model that works and so that's like broadly speaking how i would expect a lot of arena's ua to work is get a bunch of people streaming and get it highly rated or highly ranking on Twitch's homepage. Uh,
2: I'm going to hop in here real quick. Drew, would you do me a favor for our listeners to find UA?
1: Oh, sorry. Yes. So user acquisition is, or UA for short, is the process by which people spend money to place advertisements in various vehicles. It could be website banners. It could be mobile ads on games that you play on your phone where that serve ads. It could basically be anywhere where you can click on an ad and be taken to a place that gets you to download a thing. Okay. And the way the way that uh, mobile user acquisition works and, you know, I would imagine this the model mostly holds for Magic Arena is you have through like the aggregation of a bunch of steps, um, right? Like some people don't click on your ad. Some people don't install Magic Arena. Some people don't open it the first time you get down to like how much on average it costs to get a single person from seeing an ad to playing the game and you average out how much everyone spends on the game once they're in it and you compare those numbers. And if you, if it costs less to get someone in the game, than it does, uh, then they on average spend money while in the game, you have fundamentally a profitable enterprise and you should continue doing that.
2: Okay. Uh, so thank you. Um, that's good because I saw the UA in your tweet thread and I'm like, feel like I have a rough idea of this, but all the U blank uh acronyms that I'm familiar with didn't line up. So I'm like, what exactly is he referring to? And I'm like,
1: I know other totally people fair. don't know it either. Um Yeah, no, this is like super inside baseball. And thank you for, for the clarification. <laughs> the, the opportunity.
2: The, uh, yeah, yeah. The other Well oh, this is a good segue too, because uh I I caught this point in your thread and it really jumped out at me because for all the conversations we've had regarding um how we feel essentially the pivot to digital is a failure, you brought up a point that I thought was was I hadn't heard before. And uh, you know the, the one tweet that I copied down here is number 48. Um, one thing that never struck me right about Watsi's approach to personality driven eSports is how narrow it goes and how professionalized the pitch is. Your target median is a college student, sell them fame. Not a job. And that particular sentence caught me, and I flashed back to playing on uh, one of the Star City Opens and, you know, getting. I, I, I was like basically the first person in the States that had played Show and Tell or Omnitel at the time and coasted yep. into the top eight uh, on the back of a really powerful deck and having no clue how to play it. And I got to be on stream and it was a ton of fun and my friends were all kind of hyped and we were all talking about it. And then I told my my girlfriend and she went and she looked up the stream and she didn't know anything about the game, but it was fun for her to watch. And she even showed her grandma, like, look, Travis is, right. is look, look, at, look at that number on the bottom of the screen. That's how many people are watching. So that was really yep, exciting. And for all, you know, for over and over again, that's always sort of been an appeal for my extended magic group. Um, and I would imagine that, experience extrapolates out across most enfranchised player groups uh and yep you're exactly right as as you sort of drive the um the breadth as you narrow the scope of play and exposure it takes away that dream and that excitement of getting to be on camera and be special for 15 minutes um and i and i just had to point out that i thought that it was a, a very good a very good read on the situation because it rang so true, so suddenly to me.
1: Yeah. So I think that you you have it right in terms of why that's true for you. I also want to just make the case, since uh, I anticipate that you're not going to point out the the converse of it, right? Which is that for years, um, all of Magic's sort of streaming and professionalization strategy basically did what I what I outlined in that tweet, right? It, it sold people the, the opportunity of fame, the opportunity of renown being someone who is known and the opportunity to meet people who were, were on camera, right? Like going to a Grand Prix was maybe a dash of hoping to get into a feature match, but also a dash of hoping to play against someone that you had seen on camera, right? Like people might know magic professionals from, from the Grand Prix days, from watching them on camera and knowing who they are and attaching some level of fame and prestige to that. Mm -hmm. Now think about it from the flip side, right? I would imagine uh, most of your your friend and social group in Magic uh, looks a lot like you and talks a lot like you. Imagine the converse. You're Magic and uh, you want to attract a bunch of women. Women have terrible experiences on the internet for a bunch of reasons that we don't need to go into. But suffice it to say, they do. So... Maybe being famous as a woman on camera playing Magic isn't necessarily a great experience. If you want to grow Magic as a game and you decide that there is a huge untapped market of women players who want to play the game but aren't necessarily compelled by this particular uh, value proposition, right? Play Magic, become famous or whatever. Maybe they want just like someone who will teach them the game in a way that doesn't suck for them if, say, they go to a local game store and, you know, everyone's really condescending or asks them uh, if they're there with their boyfriend or asks them if they know how to play or, like, tries to get them to, like, go on a date with them rather than treating them like a real opponent, right? Like, all of these are normal things that people talk about a bunch. Now, just, like, imagine what sort of experience you might want to craft for women who feel maybe shut out of LGSs and social groups that drive them and maybe uh, aren't necessarily appealed to by all of those uh, fame and fortune propositions of being on on the Pro Tour. Maybe they just want someone to teach them how to play this fucking game. And so for them, uh, to to sort of argue against myself, maybe there is something to, you know, the MPL is a way for people to uh, learn magic in a safer environment than what is currently available. And Maybe they don't necessarily care about getting on the MPL, but the MPL is a useful tool for onboarding people who don't have access to the social circles that you know you would expect from enfranchised Magic players, right? If you don't have an LGS, if your community sucks or it's small, or you live in a super rural town and all you really have is an internet connection, and uh, you know the the nearest big city is a two-hour drive away, like what what do you have access to? And everyone has access to the internet more or less. And so this, this is, you know, from that perspective, a valid way of trying to access that audience, that untapped market.
2: Hmm.
0: So is it safe to say that you see the, the, you know, part of the shift into a digital focus for Watsi has also been a shift into direct relationships and supporting of streamers and the integration of their MPL with, you know, the streaming culture. Oh, yeah. No, I I
1: think you need the MPL because otherwise you can't guarantee that there's a bunch of uptime for people who want to learn about Arena day or night. Like you you need that kind of spread over time zones, over, you know, personalities, over, you know, whatever else to make sure that someone who goes to Twitch.tv can learn how to play Magic Arena from someone currently playing.
0: Now, that's that, their strategy. Now, the, now, the part where it kind of falls apart for me, and I think you, you spoke to this uh, in a few of your tweets as well, is, you know, my perspective um, all year has been, and, and really for years, um, has been that they should be striving for both, that they need to be very strong on the ground, and they need to be very strong in digital, and they need to be figuring out how to pass players back and forth from virtual to the real world, so that they are capturing, both capturing money on both ends of the stick, but also creating this, you know, um, convenience-based accessibility surrounding the brand where you can interact with the brand wherever, however. You know, uh, probably on on phones is a bit of a stretch for this brand um, outside of content, but that can be like your content consumption and preparatory Uh, interactions and then arena hopefully fully replacing magic online in the next few years becomes the at your desk version of events uh coupled with streaming maybe on your other screen or whatever and then you've got but the, the part that's baffling to me isn't that they're trying to spend money on digital and be better at digital it's that it seems to have been at the cost of uh demonstrated support for and belief in the necessity of their lgs network
1: And that, that to me is, I think, like, I'm not in Watsy, I don't know what they're thinking. I can imagine a bunch of stuff. The easiest thing for me to imagine is some, you know, product, you know, brand VP says, hey, we've got like a bunch of middlemen who make a bunch of money off of our game that aren't us, right? Uh, We have... Judges who are basically like loose contractors that occasionally sue us uh, (laughs) that we need in order to run these events. We have all of these this entire secondary market where we don't make any money on cards after they go out the door unless we reprint them, and it takes a long time to reprint stuff. Um, But like LGS is basically our distribution layer, and our sorry our sales layer and thrive on a secondary market that is incredibly lucrative and so wouldn't it be nice if we could capture some amount of the sort of excess value on the secondary market and also lower our operating costs how do we lower our operating costs oh we move away from supporting huge physical tournaments and move more on to digital where it's basically free to run servers and you know, you don't have to rent out a huge convention center every weekend to, to have an event that people care about. That, that would be my interpretation, or at least the start of it.
0: And yet, in, in a few of your tweets, you said in tweet 29, so the less you can play in physical events that you care about, the less valuable the cards are to you. Almost tautologically true, right? But it means that OP is floating a lot of card values and they're selling a lot of boxes. And in the following tweet... And why do people care about tournaments? Presumably they like playing, but they also care about what they got for winning, both social and tangible rewards. So let's break those out a bit. And then you went on into the the fame thing, but you also said uh, cards, their physical business are valuable because they are useful and collectible. Some more than others, obviously. Let's set aside collectible stuff for a moment. Utility is about whether you can actually play with the card, typically in tournaments. So if you remove the LGS network, Completely. Do you believe that magic could hold either hold the line on the current you know five six seven hundred million dollars worth of revenue that comes from paper, um, and and or grow that? Like, do, do you see a world within which the the physical version of this brand can continue without the support of the LGS networks?
1: I don't think so. I think that the Like, most people play at their kitchen table using cards that they own, and that is unlikely to go away uh, for the foreseeable future, right? Like, people have their elf deck, or their dragon deck, or their angel deck, or their zombie deck. And every time a set comes out, they look for cards that go into that, and they buy a box, or they and some friends buy buy a box, and that, that trend will continue into the foreseeable future. I don't know exactly, sort of, on what order of magnitude that volume accounts for their sales but i would imagine that um like it, even if you assume that all of their core offerings are entirely floated by um that that demographic which i don't buy you still have sort of all of your growth opportunities right you have commander players that want like cool rare versions of stuff uh, and, you know, they, they, they get catered to with stuff like collector's boosters, but they also get catered to with stuff like battle bond or like the Commander Anthology stuff. And if you don't have and support, one, play spaces for people to, to gather and sort of like bond over your game with, and two, uh, for your more competitive players, a structured way to prove that they are good at the game and get better at it then I think that you're going to lose a lot of that market because ultimately magic is a social game. And if you don't give people a venue in which to sort of transact socially, right? Like if you just like literally can't get them in the same place, they're not going to play the game and your, your social network will slowly deteriorate and die. And so I think I, I would expect that LGSs are a fertile breeding ground for forming relationships, friendships, based on this common interest that extend to kitchen tables, but that they need some some Petri dish in which to, to take place and that, you know, events and stores are the the best place for that. I say that having not run a store. I say that, like, not having been in that scene for a long time, but that would be my expectation.
2: I I'm definitely on board with this. As a fundamentally social product, and that it is needs to be sold as such. And to ignore that facet of the game is to miss what makes it such a special product. And uh, one of your comments was a tweet twenty. You say uh, something that you think is a missing role in the marketplace, which is the play space. That doesn't really sell magic cards, uh, but you get people to pay pay you a cover to play there, and that you know it struck me never having been there is it, that immediately sounded like Mox Boarding House out in Seattle, which does sell product, but that is like a restaurant and environment first. I I would it seems like where. Yeah, people who like who can people who the type of people who can afford magic cards can afford to be in that space and eat the food there and drink the drinks and then they play magic while they're there because it's a cool place to be, anyways. Um, Now, I'm in Buffalo. We don't have anything like that. Everything here, you know, all the shops tend to be ultra low rent. I'm sure they're the same thing as everyone else's shops. They're run out of dingy closets and what have you. But I, I, I think it's a, I'm very curious to know whether that, uh, that model can exist outside of true metropolitan areas, um, yeah. And and but I, I think it's a great idea. Like I would love to see it happen. I'm just I just wonder about it because I if I would probably as someone who definitely out earns the majority of people. It, like the large majority of people in this city and probably even the majority of people that play magic in this city, I would balk at paying like an hourly rate to be in a place and playing magic. Even
1: if, Oh no, you, you pay like $5 to get in for the day or
2: whatever. Okay, yeah. But, but I guess the,
1: the point is not to like charge people an hourly rate. The point is to like get people bought in on the idea of going.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. And, and I have to say that here in Toronto, which is a developed market with, you know, a high average income um, that has, consistently supported magic from the beginning um, with multiple stores that uh, rarely shut down. The, the model that has developed in the last five to 10 years in Toronto has been that stores that offer at minimum a food counter, coffee and special events are doing better. And the really exciting locations are the ones that like Mox Boarding house are the full package. You know, it's, it's alcohol, it's food. You can have dinner there, you can rent out a private space the whole nine um and in and in a higher end environment and that's not going to work in every market but i do find myself wondering whether the games workshop model might have been something hasbro slash watsy should have looked at in the past where they have a more um templated franchise type approach to wizards of the coast stores so that lgs is even more regimented like you can have four in that model. You can have three or four or five different products that Watts, is pushing D and D magic, what have you. And they can be on different nights. And in the same way that you can reliably find some place to play F and M every Friday, almost no matter what big city you are in in North America, <coughs> the case could be made that knowing that Tuesdays is D and D night across North America, and you just have to find that familiar wizards of the coast symbol. Yeah. Hmm.
1: You know, it's, it's also
0: outside of their expertise. It's it's no easier, I think, for them than, say, becoming an eSport. So it, yeah. it carries with it risk and problems. Um, and it's certainly I, I outside think... of the comfort zone for the rest of the company's operations. Oh, yeah. But and, I, and it's
1: super low margin, right? Like, you're talking about combining a local game store and a restaurant to extremely low margin businesses. Hmm.
0: Which, which, which thrive on volume. Yes. And... But I, I do wonder, though, whether they have tallied the. Co- like, whether they have looked at the support of LGSs as, as little more than a cost. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, I don't know to what extent they have applied analytics to figure out what the contribution to revenue and profit is from yeah. supporting and that, the LGS.
1: That, network. That, that's sort of. That's exactly what I was getting at. It's just like Magic as a brand and as a game was built in a time where LGS is basically underpinned their sort of onboarding, right? Like you, you encounter magic in a game store, you encounter magic at a game store with people. And so if you, if you give that up, you give up so many of the pillars that support like new people coming into the game, people staying around, people having something to aspire to, or like, a whole bunch of stuff that's integral to the success of the game you lose and i can see the bits and pieces of where they're trying to replace it in the digital space but i think that they have such a lead in in physical reality that i would be loath to give up as an incumbent as big as they are to try and fight it out for the convenience based dollars of a primarily digital product or a digital only product and like maybe some of this comes from my bent as sort of like a a socio-political analyst by training right like i, I majored in poly sci in college and so i i understand uh sort of a lot of the 21st century and what has what technology has done to and with us as the world feels like a, a deeply lonely place in in sort of physical spaces. And online, right, you can, you can meet people, you can be in conversation with people, but where you choose to spend your time in a physical space feels like it's getting lonelier because we're getting unmoored from our physical communities more and more because of what technology offers us far, far away from where we live. And so one of the things that magic does that very few other hobbies could ever touch is it connects you to the people around you. And I would be very wary of giving that up if I were Wizards of the Coast. I think that that is an advantage that you have over basically any non-board game, and really most board games because of your organized play structure. Uh, and I don't know that uh, what you gain in the digital space, given the competition, is, is worth the price.
2: I'm, I'm amused. That we are seriously talking about vertical integration, um, <laughs> and uh, I also have a great idea that Watsi should swoop in and try and grab all those WeWork spaces that are definitely about to get mothballed as their uh, IPO fails dra- dramatically. Seems like a good opportunity for them to build their own private store model which is i had never really thought about before but is a is a it's certainly a fascinating concept you know essentially the apple store model where they build their own stores and then you know if if they moved off of having a independent local store scene and took that and decided to be just have official wizards of the coast stores or hasbro stores that opens up some really fascinating doors within and you guys are both right that the The margins on like both, you know, hobby stores and restaurants are both pretty rough and combining them isn't really going to make it necessarily a lot better, but it does give them the opportunity to change their product distribution and their product offerings pretty considerably, right? Now you can do essentially like stuff like secret layer and you can really adjust how those are distributed. Um, because now you also own the storefront where the products are sold, which makes it easier to release those types of products and have kind of more of a, a breadth. Um, but with Toys R Us's demise, maybe that sets it up. So instead of being a Wizards of the Coast store, it's like a Hasbro store. And now they get to build their own toy store that also has a Wizards of the Coast corner. And now they get to become their own toy store, which is they are now lacking. I don't know. I, I feel like this is all real big brain and humongous, and probably more ambitious than Wizards is in position to go after. But it does lend itself to some fun, fun thoughts, anyways. Yeah, I
0: mean, there's, there's, there's definitely. I as a re, from a retailing put the retailer hat on. Hasbro stores sound, sounds sparkly. From a venture capital, put your hat on. It sounds scary as shit because we're in the age of Amazon, and the idea of starting a chain of smaller retail stores in the age of one day shipping sounds yep. completely counter to the trend line,
1: Yep, but uh, it's super fair,
0: but there is growing support in certain segments for experience based entertainment outside of the digital sphere for many of the reasons of, you know, isolation, uh, digital enforced isolation or imposed isolation that drew was referring to. So, and, you know, I'm witnessing play spaces that are fully embracing, you know, the creation of, you know, a some combination of a d uh, pub slash gaming space with a fantastic bakery. Uh, yeah, exactly. Inside.
1: No, coffee shops are hybridizing with board games because it turns out that getting people to stick around longer means that they'll order food again and they'll bring their friends who will also buy food. And that's way better than praying that people stop in your coffee shop, right? Now now you have a, a thing. You have a reason to go. You associate going to this coffee shop with playing this board game. And so every time that you want to play Settlers of Catan, you go to this coffee shop and you all buy a pastry and it's great. Food. Yeah. And, and, and the coffee
0: shop gets to monetize from like 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. Whereas the board gaming place can monetize from like noon to three in the morning if they want to stay open. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So just as I mean, a heads up, I've got about five minutes until I have to run in case you wanted to touch on any particular topics.
0: Okay. So the, the thing that I, one of the other points that jumped out at me was your comment about, you said this is also why I think legacy and vintage are worth saving on their own. Their context, where spells artifacts are best, other formats can be for creatures, etc. You were basically getting into how the reserve list strangles those formats, um, and I and I spoke to you a bit about this off cast. I was uh, pointing out my my uh, that I had a slightly different viewpoint, but could you just talk to that for a moment?
1: Sure, absolutely. So I think that. The, the strength of Legacy and Vintage, and it's not necessarily that Legacy and Vintage are the best executions of this, but that they do something uh, different with Magic's 25 or 30-year history. I'm bad at numbers. I think it's 30 years at this point, close to 30-year history, uh, that a lot of other formats don't do, is they give you a very different play experience, right? If you're tired of Standard, you're tired of the game states that it produces, you can go play a bunch of different other things. And that is one of the beautiful parts of the game is it, it has an intrinsic amount of variety because the legality of different cards offers you a different play experience and so if you can have the format that you like to play if you want you know games to go fast and be really powerful or the format where you get to build a new deck every 3 games and you know things are slow and it's about combat and combat math and racing uh, those are very different experiences, even within this one game that you're very comfortable with. And so the, the thing that I don't necessarily love about their approach to format management is um, for a long time they talked about formats in terms of their fundamental turns, right? Like Vintage was where you could die on turn one, Legacy was where you could die on turn two. Modern was where you could die on turn three, and the standard was where you could die on turn four, or whatever it was. And (laughs) uh, they, the thing that I would have, I think, liked to see is a greater emphasis on play styles. Right? Vintage is fundamentally about artifacts; that is the axis along which uh, the the game turns. Legacy is primarily about spells. And limited is almost entirely about creatures and, uh, you know, sort of developing your board. But when you get into sort of the middle territory, right, like what is the difference between modern and pioneer and, you know, overextended and pre modern and like whatever else people, wherever you want to draw the, the cut points, like what, what are you doing with that on a play experience? And then I think even more importantly, what are you doing on a product lifecycle level, right? And this, this, I guess, gets into um, my beef with Pioneer. Is like, they draw a line in the sand and Pioneer gets bigger forever. At some point, uh, I mean, it's it's already sort of happened. Uh, You get priced out of it because you either own the cards or you don't, but it costs a bunch of money to buy into the format, so to speak. The thing that uh, I always liked about whatever, uh, like basically big standard, was that it offered a really good value proposition of you will get to play these cards for four years or whatever, right? You you buy a card and you can play it for four years, in like standard for two and this other thing for all four, and so it it sort of has a natural, as long as you keep playing, and you keep investing in the game, you will get to play this this next format right a lot of when when i wrote articles for star city games people would come up to me and be like how do i get into legacy and it's like <laughs> okay well you your standard collection's useless and modern was like right on the verge of existing but like people had extended collections and that was better but like a lot of it was like buying piecemeal into this format rather than like giving them some layer of incumbency and that's like part of what fetchland's did right like fetchlands and shocklands is if you owned those and you were most of the way to like a lot of different decks it was just the format staples that differed um but you didn't really have you you don't have those on ramps if you just like have these constantly ballooning formats right there there is no promise of if i play long enough i'll own a play set of mox opals or a play set of you know tron lands and karn liberated's and so it's, it's harder to imagine caring about that stuff because it's so financially out of reach. Um, but to, to sort of tie up the two points that I'm making, one is the format management should have an eye towards getting people from invested in standard, which they'll do naturally, to invested in the, their other suite of formats so that people have longevity and they experience variety, which fundamentally is good if you can make it meaningfully differentiated variety. And then second is you have a clear value proposition on why you buy cards, which is they are useful to you for a period of time that we define and is obvious from the way that we run these formats. And then these formats are good because we you know put in the work to design them in these ways and maybe we add supplemental releases, maybe we don't. But there is some reason to feel like games of normal standard are different from games of big standard or different from games of modern or legacy or whatever your, your bigger, longer, older set is are different from games of limited. And so if you get tired of one, you can go to another. If you get tired of that, you, you can go to the next. And that keeps you in the game if you're particularly disengaged with their core offering, which is almost always standard.
0: I I have two quick points as we're running out of time. One is that I have, all, I have often wondered and sometimes voiced whether they should be designing formats as a whole. So announce whatever, call it Pioneer, but say brand new cards... And it starts with these eight decks. Yeah. You're going to buy those in a secret layer style drop. You've got a month to buy in. You you can buy up to like however much many of those decks you want. And then we're going to start releasing sets every X months to support this format. And they are going to be full of cards that are aimed at expanding these decks. And then occasionally we're going to drop a new deck load. So that you don't end up with as many Oko surprises... Because in theory, you have a team internally that is whose job it is to play the format in advance and balance it to the point of being fun, interactive, die on turn, whatever, etc. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's curious to me that they've never tried that. I think part of it is that they, they recognize the importance in this unique importance in this brand of feeling like you're the smartest person in the room with the deck nobody else discovered.
1: Yeah. Um, and but if I, you just give people the, the eight decks that are good in the format, then it probably takes a lot of the fun out of it for people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It it does, but is it is the retention level higher because the format's so good? Like one of the things I thought was interesting about what pros were talking about as uh, re- relates to Oko coming out of that Star City tournament last weekend was that the whole tournament was Oko, but people were saying, mm-hmm. you know what though? Like, yeah, I'm bored of Oko, but these are really interactive games. Like, modern is less goldfishy than it was last year
1: yeah well, well that makes the, sense
2: the pros were saying that i don't think that was the
0: sure but that's what i'm saying is that the, the people that already. are the, the right but i'm saying that the people that are playing in tournaments are looking to get different things out of it so it might not be as important to them to be a sam black coming up with exciting new deck lists many pros might be satisfied just to play a great format all the time that was skill testing now no, the other
1: I, I think even if if if, even if you get away from like great format or skill testing, I think that it feels better to lose a game where you got to play 10 turns than a game where you got to play two and then you got your second land drop destroyed.
0: Sure. So the the other point I want to make is just the, the concept of uh, format curation by segment of experience. And what I mean by that is that I've said for a while that I think that the the optimal number of formats for this game, primary formats that Wizards puts a lot of effort into supporting, is something like four or five. And that I break that down as limited is the impulse magic. Standard is the um, main format, this is the one you're supposed to be buying product for regularly. EDH is the multiplayer slash less competitive. And you need some follow-on, as you were alluding to, for Standard. What am I going to do with these cards later? Part of that is taken up by Commander. The other part is something like Pioneer, Modern, or Legacy. But I believe that Modern is headed the way of the Dinosaur because I think that Pioneer and Modern occupy the same space and that Pioneer is explicitly designed to push it out off the table.
1: Maybe not explicitly, but I think that... It will, by virtue of its greater financial accessibility and the fact that you basically have to do the same kind of stuff, which is either choose to buy into it or choose not to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it'll it'll develop the same problems as Modern over time.
0: Um, and then they hit the reset button again.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, the, the, they, will, they will have the same problem that they had with Modern today in, you know, four to seven years of Pioneer time. So yes, yeah. they've bought themselves five years. Uh, and that is probably, like, an unvarnished good for them, but it kicks the can down the road rather than solving the problem in a real
2: way. Sure. I, I, I was on board with you, what your comment about preferring the the longer rotating formats, format rather than how they're handling modern and pioneer. I just thought that was a n- not necessarily new, but definitely on track of uh, like, okay, this is fine, but it doesn't help people get in. And the further we get away from the initial spawn of that format, the harder and harder it gets for new players to buy in because yeah. that barrier doesn't get lower. It just gets higher. Um, you gotta go, um, and I, so we're gonna let you go. But I, I thank I'll, you very
1: much for having me.
2: Yeah, yeah. Quick question. One last question for you. Mm-hmm. Twenty twenty. Yeah. Do you think Magic gets to the end of it better, worse, or at par overall?
1: I mean, we're grading it against the curve of what happened in twenty nineteen, right? <laughs> sure. Like, a lot of banning, a lot of community feedback that was like mixed, but like negative in ways that they hadn't necessarily historically experienced.
2: Gr- graded against the curve of the last twenty five years, not just twenty nineteen.
1: I think that they're going to take some risks. Like they, they've already been taking some risks. I think that they will do better than they did in twenty nineteen because they will they will learn their lessons um, of just like it's really tough to make cards that work well in sort of your your paper formats and in your best of one arena formats. Uh, how well they do is mostly going to be a product of how well they embrace the strengths that they have in each of those spaces. And I think that the, the way that they can mess up is sort of the way that they did this year, which is try and make one-size-fits-all products um, for a bunch of different customers rather than focusing on serving each niche as well as they possibly could.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm so jury's out but i think that they they have the talent to recognize where they've been doing well and where they've been doing poorly uh how well they execute is entirely up to them
2: okay i i think that's uh reasonably fair
0: all right huge thank yous then to senior product manager at zynga drew levin x of uh, star city games uh, very talented and insightful individual. Thank you for joining us on MTG Fast Finance.
1: Thank you very much, James and Travis. It's been a pleasure. Have a wonderful evening.
2: Hey, Adolf, had a blast, uh, Drew. Thanks again.
1: Thank you. See ya. All
0: right. And as usual, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. How about you, Travis? I
2: am on Twitter at Wizard B-U-M-P-I-N. B-U-M-P-I-N uh, and our guest who just hopped off... Uh, uh, is on Twitter at uh, just Drew Levin, no spaces or underscores or anything.
0: And for those of you that are already MTG Price Pro Traders, we've got this entire thread by Drew, which is 50, 58 tweets long so far, uh, rolled up and posted in our uh, hyperactive Discord forum. Speaking of which, I'd like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering.
2: Uh, okay, that was a good time. I'm glad we got to talk to Drew tonight. Um, I guess am I am I reading off the the blue text here? Sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering, single, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking to Drew. I feel like I could probably do that for three hours and not miss a beat. Um, But He's a busy guy. Maybe some other day, Uh, but thanks again, Drew and uh, James. This was fun and we will be back next week for episode 202. Sounds good, Travis. Thank you. We'll see you next week on another episode
0: of MDG Fast Finance.